kids can head to their classes now. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're going to be in verse 6, and we'll round out the chapter today. In the previous passage, uh, we learned that Paul had such a concern for the church at Thessalonica that he sent Timothy to check on them. Now, you might remember that when Paul uh, planted this church that there was some contention in Thessalonica uh, because of the presence of this church, and they underwent some persecution. And uh, there came a moment where Paul uh, feared for his life, or the people that were caring for Paul feared for his life, and they had to sneak him out of town in the middle of the night. Uh, and he went to the next town, and the people in Thessalonica that were mad at him followed him to the next town to continue uh, to persecute him because of planting this church. And so probably a few months uh, has gone by, uh, not a very long amount of time, uh, and Paul has had concern about this church because of the persecution they're facing, being a brand new church, right? Can, can you imagine being a brand new church plant and facing persecution, that the people are not happy that you're there? Uh, you know, we, we live in a place, even with, with all of the, the faults that we can point out about our culture and about our country, uh, generally speaking, people are not upset and angry at the presence of churches. But this was the case in Thessalonica. And so Paul, as he had to kind of flee this situation, he has some concern for him. So he sends Timothy back to check on them. He, he had feared that maybe they had fallen into temptation. He had feared that maybe they had buckled under this extreme pressure, that maybe their faith uh, had, had possibly faltered. And he had such a deep love for the church that they were in the forefront of his mind. I think that always blows me away about the Apostle Paul is that he dealt with persecution of his own. And we're going to look at a little bit of that today. But even in the midst of his own difficulty, uh, he was often thinking about uh, the churches and the people that were near and dear to him, it would seem, much more than his own difficulties. Uh, so in last week's passage, we looked at in all of that just the importance of Christian community and how God has, has given us one another and has called us to fellowship with one another. Pastor Brent mentioned that being a Lone Ranger Christian is not a thing that you'll see in the Bible. Um, it, it's, it's a foreign concept uh, to the premise of Christianity. And so this week, uh, we're going to see the, necess uh, the necessity of love within that Christian community. So think about this. What, how, how would you mark a, what you would call a successful church? What do you think of when you think a church is doing really well or a church is uh, a good place to be? What do you think of? You might think of the attendance numbers of that church that a lot of people show up. Certainly a good thing, right? Uh, you might think uh, the quality uh, with which they do things, quality music and quality programs and having enough programs to kind of cover from, from young to old and, and everywhere in between. And those are certainly good things as well. But what I hope that we're going to see today is that uh, Paul prays for the church at Thessalonica one thing very specific. Um, of all the things that he could have prayed for them, he prays us one thing, and I'm going to leave you in suspense for a moment. We'll get there in a few minutes. Um, but there's one thing that Paul prays for the church, and it's not that it would grow, uh, even though that's a good thing. It's not that they would have quality programming, uh, which that's a good thing. He doesn't pray uh, really even that their faith would be strong, even though that would be a good thing. He doesn't pray for better circumstances, although that would be a good thing. And so stay tuned here for the next few minutes to see what Paul prays for. Uh, as we get into verse 6, it says this, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, 
For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And we'll stop right there for just a moment. So Paul had sent Timothy to get this report on Thessalonica, and Timothy came back to Paul. And he came back and he delivered a very positive report. Um, and so Paul acknowledges that positive report that Timothy brought to them, the good news of their faith. Timothy didn't come back and say, hey, guess what, Paul? The persecution died down and everything is going great. It's likely that the persecution had not died down and things were not necessarily going great as we might define them. But Timothy comes back and reports the news of their faith and of their love and that they remember Paul and they think of him kindly uh, as they remember him. So this does Paul's heart good to know that this church that he cares for deeply this church that he's invested in has not buckled under pressure, has not fallen to temptation. Uh, this church whose faith has not faltered and that they still remember Paul and they think of him kindly. Now, I could imagine a scenario where Paul fleeing in the middle of the night might rub some people the wrong way, right? It gets hard, Paul, and you flee to the next town in the middle of the night. You leave us here to deal with this mess that you created. That's not the report that they got. I might feel that way if I were one of the people in Thessalonica. Like, what is, like, why doesn't Paul stay here and help us with this? Right? He leaves us, but no, they remember him kindly and they long to see him uh, as simultaneously Paul longs to see them. And so Timothy brought the good news of their faith and their love, and it, it calmed Paul's fears of what could be happening. Uh, again, a new church full of, of new converts to Christianity. It's not likely that this church even had a doctrinal statement yet. They probably didn't have a mission statement or a vision statement. They probably didn't have a long-term plan for growth. They probably didn't have a strategy for how they're going to evangelize their community. They probably didn't even have home groups yet. I mean, imagine this. And they're just immediately under persecution. And here a short time has elapsed and their faith has not faltered. How could it be that their faith would not falter when they don't have all these things that we normally have in our church? It's a bit of a mystery, but Paul, uh, it does him good to hear uh, this positive report. They remembered him kindly. They longed to see him. He longed to see them. This report also included that the church had Paul on their mind, and that was of great encouragement to him. Timothy didn't deliver a report that says, hey, Paul, these people have a lot of things they want to say to you. They're mad that you left. The report didn't include that. The report didn't include, here are all the bad things that are happening in Thessalonica, as far as we know. But it included that they longed to see him and that they thought of him kindly and affectionately. For this reason, it says in verse 7, brothers, in all of our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul takes great comfort in that this church is still standing. This new church full of new converts is still standing under persecution. As a matter of fact, he takes so much comfort in verse 8. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And the way that I take that to mean is that if we heard a report that you weren't doing good, we just couldn't handle it. That's what Paul is saying here. We live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's everything to Paul to hear that this church that he planted just possibly a few short months earlier is standing fast in the Lord. Their faith is intact. They miss him, they care for him, and they long to see him. He takes comfort from that. 
This makes me think of something a couple of weeks ago that I saw in my my social media feed, a post uh, from a friend, someone I've known for a long time. And the post says this. It says, while I understand the sentiment behind calling your church a family or some iteration of the idea in a church name or mission, in fact, it probably has some biblical merit. However, it seems its practical outworking is at best a bit creepy and at worst abusive and cultish. When I when I first read that, I just I just thought, what in the world? What is that? And and what what this seems to be saying is that the best thing that you can hope for out of your church family in quotes is that, that it's a, at best a bit creepy, and at worst you might be involved in a cult. Now, there's probably some truth to this kind of like there are some creepy churches out there, and there are some cultish churches out there and movements, right? Those things exist. I'm not going to pretend that they don't exist, but this is an indictment on the church. More than that, it might even be an indictment on God's design for the church, God's intentional design for the church and and what the Bible calls us to. It's certainly an indictment on the idea of Christian community that we talked about last week. Now, it's worth acknowledging that, that many have been hurt from within the church and within Christian community. I've experienced that myself. I'm sure many of you have as well. But it's probably not a whole lot different than your blood family, right? We've all been hurt by our families, right? Families don't always get along. Families aren't always perfect. Families rub each other the wrong way. People in families get mad at each other. There's conflict in families, right? But at the end of the day, a family is tied together by their blood, right? A family is a family. And God's design for the church is is not any different than that. Not any different than that at all. How does Paul view Christian community? What would Paul, do you think, say to this quote if he saw this as he was scrolling through his social media feed? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 to 28, Paul is defending his apostleship. He's defending his office of apostle because he's coming under attack. And, and here's what he says in his defense of himself. Speaking of those who are coming against him, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He says, With far greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. It was thought that 39 or 40 lashes would kill a man, and so they would do 39 lashes. And so it's kind of the idea is being beaten within an inch of your life. This happened to Paul five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and that doesn't mean what you think it means. They threw rocks at him until he was to die. That's what stone was in the Bible. It says that happened to him. Three times he was shipwrecked at night and a day. He was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And Paul did all of this so that he could travel from place to place and establish churches. He would establish elders He would establish Christian community everywhere that he went. And this is the price that he paid for his work in establishing local churches, fellowship of believers. And then in verse 28, he says, and apart 
from other things. In other words, all these things, if that's not bad enough, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. I don't think Paul would say the best thing that you can hope for is that your church family is a bit creepy at best and cultish at worst. I think Paul would reject that completely. Paul gave his life in service to the ministry of the gospel and establishing gospel-proclaiming, Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches so that they could come together as a sort of a family. That's not quite the same thing as your blood family, but every bit as important, even more so in the life of the Christian. Even though Paul has plenty of his own difficulties to face, he can't stop thinking about the church. But what does that say to you as to the importance of the church? The Bible tells us that in the end, nothing is going to prevail against the church, not, not even Satan himself. But in, in the end, the church will stand with all of its flaws, even with some of its creepiness, right? And all of its flaws, the church will not fail because it's God's church and it's built by his design. Author and pastor Tim Keller, he talks about the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He has a, a short book on 2 Corinthians. And he talks about how the apostle Paul has this freedom because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for him that, that he can forget himself and forget his own problems and he can think about the church and think about the work of the gospel the apostle paul we, we don't see a man who is the center of his own universe christ is the center of his universe that's the freedom of self-forgetfulness that keller talks about there's something about being a follower of christ and understanding who he is and what he's done for us that frees us to forget ourselves that frees us to forget our own problems. And I'm not making light of problems and not saying that our problems or issues are, are unimportant. They are. They're important to us. They're important to God. But there becomes this freedom as a follower of Christ where I don't have to be the center of my own universe. And we see this on display. Just in those short verses in Second Corinthians of Paul talking about all of his hardships, yet the thing I constantly think about, he would say, is the church. The thing I'm constantly worried about is not necessarily where I'm going to eat or sleep tomorrow, but the church, and that the work of the gospel would continue. So when Paul says in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 3, for now we live if you were standing fast in the Lord, that gives us some context to that statement. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And so Paul is encouraged here once again by their faith. So much so that he says, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? In other words, there's not enough thanksgiving that we are able to give to God because of this positive report that we hear about your faith. It's likely that this positive report might, might have brought down Paul's anxiety level just a bit. We can't thank God enough. We can't give God enough thanks for you. He even goes so far as to say that it brings us joy that we hear this report. We have joy for your sake before our God. And he acknowledges that they earnestly pray night and day. Paul was a man of prayer, right? Think about the things that you pray for. What do you pray for? When, when do you pray? 
Right? Do you pray night and day? If you're like me, you probably don't pray night and day. Right? I read that and think that that's kind of a noble ambition, but the reality of it, my goodness. When do we pray? We pray when things start to go bad. And it's kind of a, you know, Jesus take the wheel kind of a prayer, right? Help, because this hard thing in my life or something doesn't go our way, right? We, we pray. Paul prays earnestly night and day for a couple of things that, that we may earnestly see you face to face, he says. So he longs to see them to go back to the, to the place where he had to flee from. And that we might supply what is lacking in your faith. And I don't think he's saying that, that their faith is bad. Uh, or I don't, even, I don't even think that he's necessarily saying that their faith is deficient as much as he's just saying, like, we want to come help and be a part of what's going on there. We, we want to suffer through this persecution with you so that we can encourage you, so that we can continue the gospel work together. If I were Paul, my, my letter might be, man, I hope that goes well for you. Let me know when it's over and then I'll come visit. Right? That might be what we would write. But Paul wants to be there so that he can supply what's lacking in their faith so that he can help and support uh, and encourage in the midst of a difficult situation. In verse 11, he goes on to say, Now, in light of all these things, in light of this positive report, in light of our earnest and constant unceasing prayers for you, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Of all the things that Paul could unceasingly pray for the church at Thessalonica, he's not praying that that life would be easier for them. He's not praying that, that the church would balloon up to where there's many people. He's not praying for better circumstances or different circumstances. He's not praying to God and saying, God, you got this wrong. They don't, these people don't need to suffer over there. He prays that his way would be directed to him and that the Lord would make them increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This, this kind of blows my mind a little bit. Of all the things that Paul could pray for the church, he prays that they would love. I would at the top of my list would would be that it would get easier for them, that the persecution would stop, their circumstances would be better. That would be what I would pray for. I would pray for that a lot for this church if I were Paul. But Paul prays in the midst of those things, in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of adversity. He doesn't even pray that, that their faith would grow stronger, although I'm sure that he probably does pray that for them, but, but he prays that their love would abound. First and foremost, that love would abound within the church, and secondly, that it would abound outside the church. First Corinthians 13, 1-3, passage that some of you might be familiar with, the famous love chapter in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, that If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the Apostle Paul, he, he thinks pretty highly of love. Jesus also thought pretty highly of love, John thirteen thirty four and 35, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul tells us that if we have not love, that we're nothing. Even if we have such a great faith that we can move a mountain. Right? Has anybody moved a mountain? Probably not. Like our, our faith isn't even that. But even if we had such faith to move a mountain, Paul says, if, if you don't love, it's nothing. Jesus tells us to love one another in the way that he loved us. And how is it that Jesus loved us? That's a bar that you and I will never clear. Jesus loved us so much. Right? God loved us so much through Christ that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's how much God loves us. And Jesus says, love each other just like that. Love each other in such a way that you serve and that you sacrifice for one another. That's a hard thing. Jesus even goes so far elsewhere to say, love even your enemies. We're called to love our neighbors, right? And, and some of us, we can get behind that, but, but we're called also to love our enemies. G.K. Chesterton says that it's so hard because it's often that our neighbors and our enemies are the same people. Right? Our, they're, they're right there in front of us, and it's hard to love. There is no harder command, I don't think, in all of Scripture than the call to love your enemies because even on my best day, I have zero motivation to love my enemy. I just don't. That's a hard thing. And Jesus goes as far as to say to love even those who have hurt you, even those who have wronged you, those who have harmed you, those who are responsible for your suffering and your persecution. Love even those people. And why is it that Jesus can say that? I can't stand up here and tell you to do that because I don't want to do it at all. Jesus can say that because that's exactly what he did. Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus gave his life for his enemies so that his enemies would come to know him and be saved. That's how Jesus loves. And that's the commandment that we're given to love one another just as he loved us. And as we do that, something remarkable happens. He says that by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So in other words, this is the defining mark or the defining characteristic of the church. Is that first and foremost, like we should love each other inside the four walls of the church, right? Love should abound. And it very well could be that, you know, your enemy is on the other side of the room from you, even here and now, right? That's possible. But Jesus says that this is how the world is going to know who those are that follow Christ is because they have this radical love for one another that can't be attributed to anything else except that must be from Christ. And then Paul prays not only that their love would increase and abound for one another, but that their love would abound and increase for all. In other words, that that love would spill outside of the four walls of the church, that it wouldn't be just contained inside of a bubble. Sometimes churches do that, don't we? Right? We kind of live in bubbles and, and we hang out with, with Christian people doing Christian things all of the time and, and we don't want to be stained by what's out there. Right? That, that's a bit creepy. I'll, I'll give you that. that. That's not the kind of love that, that Jesus is talking about. It's not the kind of love that Paul is calling for here. Paul is calling for a love inside of the church that abounds so much and has increased so much that it can't help but spill outside of the church and love those that are outside as well. 
in the midst of their persecution. He's not telling the Thessalonians, like, just stay away from the bad people. He's not telling them that. He's not telling them, you know, huddle up in your homes and don't let anybody in that you don't know. He's not telling them that at all. He's praying that their love would abound inside the church and outside of the church, and that it would increase inside and outside of the church. And Paul can say that because we see this this anxiety that he has for the churches that overshadows all of the sufferings of his life. His, His passion and his compassion for people to come to know Christ overshadows every bit of suffering that he's endured in his life. And you you know this about the Apostle Paul if you've studied his life at all. He had a standing in the world before he became a Christ follower. He was respected. He was revered. He was a persecutor of the church and people feared him. Educated, came from a good background. He had a good uh, kind of family pedigree or resume, if you will. And he came to know Christ And his life was filled with suffering and persecution from that point forward. The man who persecuted the church became persecuted on behalf of the church. And that's how he finished out his life. And that's the guy that's praying that in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their suffering, that love would abound and that it would increase both inside and outside of the church. And why is it that he prays that? In verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Matthew 22:37, Jesus says that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And so again, Jesus kind of giving us this really impossible bar to clear. Love God with everything that you have. That's problematic right away because I I can't, right? Some days, yeah. Other days, not so much. He says that's the greatest commandment. The second one, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And at the end of the day, I don't love anybody more than I love me. And that's probably true of you too. I love me more than I love anybody and anything in the world. And Jesus is saying, you know how, you know how much you love yourself? Love other people just like that. There might be some people in this world that I might love maybe almost as much as I love me. There's a whole lot of people that are never going to get anywhere close to being loved by me as much as I love me. Right? That's, it's true for you too. But Jesus says that when we love God with everything we have and we love other people as much as we love ourselves, then we've fulfilled the law and the prophets. We've fulfilled the entirety, really, of the Old Testament. If we do that. Now, if we just leave it there, again, this is just a bar that's far too high for any of us to clear. But the Bible tells us that there's a reason that we love God. And it's not because we're smart enough that we've figured out that, that He controls everything, that He's the creator of the universe. It's not because we've come into this intellectual, you know, ascent where we've figured out, you know, God is, is overall. The reason that we love God, according to John, is that He first loved us. He initiated this relationship with us. He initiated enemy love, and we respond to that by loving Him when we come into this understanding of the truth, and this is really when we come into an understanding of of the gospel. 
We love God because first and foremost, He loved us, not because of anything we've done. Remember, we, we, we are His enemies until we come to know Him. And He loves us. And when we, when we learn that, when that truth sinks into the depths of our soul, right, John also tells us the fact that we even believe that truth, that, that's the work of God too. It's not, we don't get credit for that. It's the work of God that we believe in John chapter 6. When that truth sinks deep into our soul, the only response that makes any sense whatsoever is that we love him back. Because he initiated it. He initiated something that we would never initiate. He did for us something that we would never do, that we could never do, even if we wanted to. He did it. And in light of that truth, we're called to love God with everything that we have, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that it makes sense that we would love our neighbors who might also be our enemies as ourself. Because I was once God's enemy and he loved me. And so what, what better way to be a reflection of Christ as, as a Christ follower than, than to love in similar fashion to how Christ loved us? And Paul says that it's this kind of love that establishes our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. And again, this is, this is a bar far too high for any of us to clear. And so we fail at this over and over and over and over again. We fail at this on a daily basis, even, even moment by moment. Which is why Paul prays earnestly and without ceasing that their love would abound. Not for easier circumstances, not even for stronger faith, but that they would just continue to love. They would love God, they would love their enemies, their persecutors, they would love one another. And in so doing, that the right, the righteousness of Christ would be on display, that they would be found blameless and holy before God, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Now, our Christian faith tells us that, that, that Christ came. Right, we're, we're celebrating this time of year, the incarnation of Christ. He came as a baby, came in humility and weakness and feebleness. God became flesh, and he dwelt among us, the Bible tells us. But there's going to be a time when, when Christ returns, the second coming of Christ, and it's not going to be in weakness. It's not going to be in humility, and it's not going to be feeble. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that on that day, every knee will bow, acknowledging Christ as Lord, whether willingly or unwillingly, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, willingly or unwillingly. There's nothing going to be weak or humble or feeble about that day. And Paul reminds us here in this call to love that we would be ready for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. What if, what if the second coming of Christ is actually going to happen? I think sometimes we struggle to wrap our minds around this because it's, it's something that, that's way out there, right? Something that's not going to happen tomorrow, probably. That's how we think. I suppose it could happen tomorrow, but, but probably none of us thinks that. It's way out there. Maybe I don't need to, to think about this in the forefront of my mind to be ready for it, right? Might, might not even happen in my lifetime, right? People have been saying for 2,000 years, Christ is going to return. It has yet to happen. So, so it might not even happen in my lifetime. So I don't think about it all that often. 
But Paul reminds us here that, that it is going to happen, that he is going to come. And I would just ask you, like, what if that's true? What if, what if Christ really is going to return? Regardless of when it happens, whether it's in my lifetime or not, or your lifetime or not, what if the return of Christ is imminent? What if this is a fact? What if there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? What if that day actually is going to happen? Then what? Well, I think we have our answer. If that day actually is going to happen, then we're on a mission to love. We're on a mission to love inside the church. We're on a mission to love outside the church. We're on a mission to love our enemies. We're on a mission to love our neighbors. We're on a mission to love those who are not like us. Because one day... Everybody in the entirety of creation, every human being will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and they will bow their knee, whether willingly or unwillingly, because Christ will return. And so be, be encouraged today. What, what, what I don't want to happen today is you know, for me to stand up here and just say, well, you all just need to love each other. And then for you to walk away thinking like, I just want to love everybody, <laughs> right? Don't, don't be discouraged. Like be, be encouraged that this is the power of Christ in us. He calls us to do this thing, this hard thing, even such as enemy love. And he empowers us to do that through his love for us. And so if you're sitting here thinking, well, gosh, this is just, how am I, how am I going to do this? Pray earnestly and unceasingly like Paul that love would abound. Right? We might be tempted to pray, well, if this person were just a little bit nicer, then maybe I could love them. <laughs> they weren't such a jerk or they weren't so mean or... If I didn't wake up grumpy every morning, maybe I could love my coworkers a little bit more, right? We, we tend to think of those kinds of things. But Paul, we can take our cues from Paul and pray for ourselves and for one another earnestly and unceasingly that love would abound within these walls so much so that it would spill out outside of these walls to those around us. And we would do so because we actually believe that one day Christ is going to come back and he's going to count all of those that belong to him. And it's our job in between now and then, our mission in between now and then, to try to round up as many people as we can by God's grand design in 2 Corinthians 5, that those who have been reconciled to God would now undertake the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, those who have been saved would be the primary means by which others would come to know Christ. Right? This is, this is God's grand design, the way that he's made it to be. And so be encouraged this morning that this call to love is something that we, we don't have in us. It's not innate to us. It's not something that we naturally do, but it's the work of Christ in us. And so if, the, if this is your struggle, like it's my struggle, then we pray to Christ earnestly and without ceasing, help me to love. Help me to love the people that I fellowship with and help me to love the people outside of those with whom I fellowship. Father, we're grateful this morning. We're thankful that, uh, that you love us Thankful that you uh, call us to do things that you uh, provide for us to do. You don't just give us this this hard call to love and say, good luck, let me know how it works out, that you actually uh, provide for us to do the things that you call us to do. And so I pray that you would help us, uh, first and foremost as a church, to be characterized within our community uh, as a church that loves. That when people come in, that they would see and feel and hear the love that exists within these four walls. But more than that, Father, we pray that you would help us to be a church that's characterized by the way that we love those outside of our four walls, those outside of our community, that you would help us to be known as a church that loves everyone regardless of a person's social status or their background or their beliefs.
that you would help us to be a people that are characterized by our love for one another and by our love for everyone else. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.